Amen. Amen. That's good. God has been so good to us, has he not? And answered those prayers for us. I was preaching on Wednesday night about the Samuels that we've got in our life. That God has answered prayers for us, been so good to us. God did something beyond the imaginable. And God broke through in our hour of desperation. And God gave us a Samuel. Amen. And answered our prayer. God is so good. That's wonderful. God's good to us. All right. That's good. Are y'all ready for this? <laughs> Am I ready for this? Ask me after church, I'll let you know. How many of you brought your Bible? Will you hold up the Bible all over the building this morning? I want you to join me on page number 999, 999 in your old Schofield Bible or the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter 5, very first book of the New Testament. I'd like you to open your Bible there. Follow me along here for just a minute as we look at this text together this morning. I want to thank you again for being here. I sure do encourage you to be back tonight. Listen, don't you buy into this, what the media is putting out there, that the only place you can catch the coronavirus is at church. You do know, you, I mean, you know, it's almost like you can't get it at Lowe's, you can't get it at Food Line, you can't get it at Walmart, but under God, don't go to church, because if you go to church, you're going to get the coronavirus. And, you know, sad but true, a lot of God's people have bought into that. And uh, I tell you what, we're doing things here Walmart's not doing. That's exactly right. You're safer here than you are at Walmart. That's exactly right. Yes, sir, just drop your money in the receptacle. You're fine here. You're good here. That's, I'm kidding. But uh, anyway, come back tonight at 5.30. We're looking forward to seeing you again and having a good time together in God's house. Matthew chapter 5, if you're there, would you say amen? All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. If you've been watching or if you've been here over the last several weeks, then you may remember that we are making our way through the opening book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, as I've told you previously, basically all that we know about the life of the Lord Jesus as he walked here on this earth among men, we find it from the uh, four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of these four Gospels kind of portrays Jesus in a different light. They present Jesus to us in a different way. For instance, over in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that Jesus was the suffering servant, the one who came not to, not to, to be ministered to, but the one who came to minister. He's the servant. That's what Mark says. Luke tells us that Jesus is the Son of Man in that great verse in Luke 19.10 where Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. <clears throat> the Gospel of John, the, uh, John portrays the Lord Jesus as the Son of God, but Matthew paints a different picture of Jesus. Matthew tells us that Jesus Christ is the King. And that's the reason that I'm entitling this series of sermons, Meeting the King. Matthew says to the people of his day, as well to the people of any day, hey, Jesus is the King. You see, Matthew himself had met the king. Matthew was going about his business one day as a tax collector. Boy, was his life a mess. Matthew had made some bad choices, some bad decisions in his life, and his life was all messed up. He was working for the Roman Empire. He had totally turned his back on his upbringing. Matthew was from the tribe of Levi, and that was the tribe that God has specifically consecrated and set aside to handle holy things. Boy, if you think there was any that loved God and wanted to do what's right. It was Matthew. But as the New Testament opens up, Matthew's working
working for the Roman Empire. He's turned his back on his upbringing. No doubt broke the heart of his mama and his daddy. He's so hated by the people of his own nation that he's ostracized. He can't even go into the house of God because of some choices that he's made. About the only, only friends he's got are the publicans and the sinners and the harlots, the, the outcast of the society of that day. And there he sits one day working by the receipt of customs. He's taking in tax money when out of nowhere the king, the Lord Jesus, walks by. And when the king walked by that day, he said this to Matthew. If you'll look there in that verse, he said, Matthew, he said, I want you to follow me. Boy, aren't you glad that Jesus loves people like Matthew? By the way, if he hadn't loved people like Matthew, he sure couldn't have loved people like you and like me because many of us, you know, we turned our back on our upbringing. But he, about the only friends we could find was the publicans and, and the sinners and the harlots. That was our crowd. But aren't you glad for Jesus one day when he walked by and he looked in your direction and he said, here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to come on and I want you to follow me. In love, the king said to Matthew, follow me. By the way, can I say this today? Your life may be a mess. You may have made some bad choices and bad decisions and you sit here this morning in a service and your life is in a place that you never dreamed it would be when you was a teenager, when you was growing up. But I'm glad I can tell you there's a king that loves you this morning. There's a God in heaven that loves you and he says to you this morning, I'd like for you to come. I love you. Why don't you just come and follow me? And the Bible said that Matthew from that very hour, he rose up and he began to follow Jesus. His life would never be the same. That was the first day of the rest of his life. And I just want to say you may be sitting in this service today lost without God. Hey, but I'm glad I can tell you this could be the best day and the first day of the rest of your life. The king is saying, come on, follow me. Amen. And that very hour, Matthew rose up. You know what that tells me? Matthew opened up his heart to the king. Boy, I tell you, that's what the king wants from you. He wants you to open up your heart to him today. He opened up his heart. But then we find that Matthew not only opened up his heart to the king, but Matthew opened up his home to the king as well. You see, right after he started following Jesus, Matthew had a cookout over at his house. He was barbecuing hamburgers with cheese on top of, Velveeta cheese about that thick on top of his cheeseburgers. And he was having uh, kosher hot dogs with no pork in them, and, and I mean, man, and he opened up, he invited all of his friends over to his house because he had an underlying motive, and that underlying motive is he wanted his friends to meet the king. That's the reason over in the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 2, that we read this. The Bible said Jesus sat at meat in Matthew's house, in Matthew's house, and many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and the Bible said that many of Matthew's friends friends followed Jesus. You see, he opened up his heart to Jesus, and then he opened up his home to Jesus. He wanted his friends to meet the king. But then we find Matthew not only opening his heart and his home, but he opened up his hand to Jesus. Because you see, Matthew was a tax collector. He was good at keeping records, and he was good at keeping accounts. And so as he began to follow Jesus, that's what he did. He kept a record of the life of Jesus, an account of his life. 
life, the miracles that he did, some of the things that he said, he wrote them all down. And then later on, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote a book about the king. And we call that book the Gospel of Matthew. And it just seems clear to me that Matthew is saying from this book, I want everybody to know who the king is. Can I say again that the greatest business that you and I can ever be about in these days is introducing people to the king. And as we've moved through these opening chapters of this book, Matthew's done a good job of introducing us to the king. Back in chapter 1, he tells us about the ancestry of the king. In chapter 2, he tells us about the arrival of the king. In chapter 3, he tells us about the announcer of the king. In chapter 4, he tells us about the adversary of the king. And in chapter 4, he tells us about the activity of the king. But when we come to chapter 5, Matthew tells us about the address the message of the king. Now what we have here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. You know, Jesus had a way with words. You know, that's an understatement for me to say that, that Jesus had a way with words. But Jesus had a way that when he talked to people, when he preached, he just had a way of reaching into their hearts and grabbing a hold of their hearts, getting their attention. The Bible said over in the Gospel of Mark, the Bible tells us that the common people heard him gladly. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm a common person. And the Bible said that the common people heard Jesus gladly. You know why? He had a way with words. I'm reminded that one, on one occasion the chief priests and the Pharisees were very mad at Jesus. They were angry at some of the things that he was saying. So they gathered together a band of soldiers and they said we heard that Jesus is over at the temple teaching. We want you to go over there and arrest him. Take him by force and bring him over here. So the Bible said those soldiers went over there to where Jesus was and when he was there he was teaching and those soldiers they listened to what Jesus said. Sometimes later they went back to those chief priests and scribes and they look at those men and say why did you not take him? And here's what they said in the gospel of John chapter 7 verse 46. They said never a man spake like this man. They were mesmerized they were captivated by the words that the Lord Jesus spake. In fact, if you'll look over at the end of this sermon in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28, when he gets through with this message and he's given the invitation, the Bible said this, that the people were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus had a way with words. And what we're going to find as we move through this sermon over these next few weeks we're going to find out, boy, that Jesus had a message for those who were listening. And by the way, can I say this? He's got a message for us today. A message if you will listen. So what happens is look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was said, his disciples came unto him. Now I want to stop and just say that Jesus has taken the position of the king. He sat down, he has his subjects before him, and then the crowds that are following him. So he has taken the position of the king. And then in verse 2, the Bible said that he opened his mouth. And then he makes a series of nine different statements. I'm calling this the nine-point introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. You ever heard a preacher before, and sometimes his introduction is longer than his sermon? You ever had that experience before? Or you ever heard a preacher before, and, and, he, and he gets the... And he preaches about 40 minutes and he says, okay, that's my introduction and now for my message. You ever been, 
you ever heard me preach a time or two before? But uh, what Jesus does here is he introduces his sermon by, with a nine-point introduction. Let me read it to you. Look at verse 3 and notice the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men rev- uh, when are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus begins this sermon with a nine point introduction and he surrounds every point with the word blessed. Now to understand these statements again, you've got to understand that word blessed. It's the Greek word makarios and it means this. It means happiness to the highest degree. Or in the south we say it like this, happiness to the highest heaven. Some people interpret that word blessed as the plural of the word happiness. So in other words, they'd read statement three like this, verse three like this, uh, happy, happy, or all oh, the happinesses are the poor in spirit. Boy, I want to tell you something. Jesus said, I just want you to be happy. By the way, did you know what? That, that we have a happy God. Our God is a happy God. He is happy to the highest heaven. He is happiness to the highest degree. Our God is a happy God. Now, I know that messes up a lot of people's concept of God. You know, your concept of God kind of carries with it the idea of how you're going to relate to God. But can I tell you something? Our God is a happy God. He's not only just a happy God, He's a happy, happy God. He is happy to the highest heaven, God. I mean, He's not, a lot of people think God is stern and He's angry and He's looking, waiting for somebody to mess up so he can zap them uh, with, a, uh, with, a, with a lightning bolt from heaven because he's angry at people. But I'll tell you, that's not what the Bible said about God. The Bible said that God is a happy God. You see, over in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 11, we read this. According to the glorious power, gospel of the, and then there's the word, the blessed God, the happy, happy God, the, the happy to the highest degree God. God is a happy God, and guess what? Those who hang around God get happy as well. Amen. Maybe one of the reasons that you're so miserable in your Christian life is you ain't been hanging around God too much. Maybe you've been hanging around the wrong crowd. And when you get around the wrong crowd, joy. Hey, brother, when the wrong crowd walks in, joy walks out. Hey, but when you get around God, he's a happy God. You ever notice when you get around somebody that's happy, it just has a tendency to rub off on you just a little bit. You ever get around a little child, and when that little child gets, uh, he gets, uh, for lack of a better way, he gets tickled, you know, his giggle box turns over, whatever, and he just starts laughing. And the first thing you know, everybody around that little child is laughing. You've got into the atmosphere of happiness, and that made you happy. And I just want to tell you, when you get around God, he's a happy God. And when, you know why we got so many miserable Christians in our day? They ain't hanging around God enough. The Bible said this in Psalm 16, verse number 11, that will show me the path of life. In thy presence, in the presence of God, is what? Not just a little bit of joy, but I'm telling you the cup's got full and it's running over the sides and the saucer's getting full. 
the fullness of joy. Can I tell you this? Some of you need to be happy. You know why? You ain't got no happiness on your face this morning. That's exactly right. Hey, he's a happy God. Get in his presence. It'll make you happy. By the way, that word blessed, that happiness again, is used to describe our loved ones that have died and are in heaven. Look at this verse, Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice uh, from heaven saying unto me, Write, and then there's the word, Blessed are the dead. Happy are the dead which die in the Lord. Now, I get it down here when our loved ones die. We aren't very happy. The tears flow freely. Our heart is broke. I mean, the loneliness, the despair sets in on us. And we walk by our loved ones laying in the coffin, and we know we won't see them again on this earth. And the tears flow. But can I tell you something? Where they're at, over yonder, hey, there's no sadness over there. They're happy to the highest degree. They're happy to the highest heaven. They're in joy. They're in the presence of God. And they are happy. Jesus said, I want you to have that same kind of happiness. I want you in your life, I want you to be blessed. I want you to have happiness to the highest degree. Well, if you want happiness, then Jesus lays out a plan for us for happiness. And we call this plan the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. These are statements that Jesus made that if we will adopt them into our life, if we will make these attitudes our attitudes, then we too can be happy. And the best definition I can give you of a beatitude is this. Let's turn it around. A beatitude is the way your attitude ought to be. If you want to be happy, then let your attitude be like this. You ever hang around people got bad attitudes? Now, I know you're thinking about your mom-in-law right now. Just popped in your mind, picture of her. You ever hang around people that have a bad attitude? You know, people with bad attitudes, seldom if ever are they happy. We've all met people like that. But can I tell you something? If you've got a bad attitude, you got to change. You need an attitude adjustment. You need a change of attitude. And you need to leave the bad attitude, and you need to adopt the B attitudes. And if you'll adopt the B attitudes, you too can be happy. If you got a bad attitude, you're, never, you're going to chase happiness like a dog chases his tail around. You're never going to find happiness. I mean, it's elusive to a person with a bad, bad attitude. Can I ask you a question? Do you want to be happy? Amen. Do you want to be happy? I'm talking about happiness to the highest heaven. Happiness to the highest degree. All right. Here's the plan. Follow these Beatitudes. Now, I want you to look at them. There are nine of them. It's 1043, and I'm not going to preach all nine of these this morning. And all God's people said, why did you say that for? I'm not going to preach all nine of them. But I have taken these nine and broken them up into three sections of threes. All right? And if you look there at verse 3, 4, and 5, what we find in this section of Beatitudes is how to enter God's family. In other words, if you don't know how to get into God's family, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. Then if you'll come to verse, uh, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8, that's how to express God's family. That's how to let others know that you're in the family. And then when you come to verse number uh, 9, 10, and 11, that's how to enjoy God's family. Now wait a minute. Here we go. Entering God's family, 
expressing God's family and enjoying God's family. How do you how do you do that? Well, this morning I want to talk a little bit on how to enter God's family. Now, God's family is the most important family on this earth today. Because I'm going to tell you something, when God's family leaves out of here, you think we're in a mess now. When this family, God's family gets out of here, when the rapture takes place and God takes us out of this world, you think what we're seeing is bad now. You, you, excuse my English, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think lawlessness is abounding on every side. You think our world is crazy now. You wait till God's family leaves. Amen. Buddy, when we get out of here, you talk about, and the Spirit of God is taken out, you talk about a mess. This world is going to be in a mess. The most important family you could ever be a member of is the family of God. I'm talking about getting saved. I'm talking about getting ready to die. I'm talking about getting ready for eternity. And buddy, if you, if you are not a member of God's family, you're not ready to die. You're not ready for eternity. In fact, you're headed for hell. You need to turn about in your life. You need to become a member of the family of God. Now, how do you do it? Well, look at verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. I'm calling this this morning the three steps to entering the family. All right? Now, we're talking about attitudes. So let's begin. Look at verse 3. Blessed, happy, happy. Happy to the highest degree are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm calling this one, number one, the step, the blessedness of emptiness. The blessedness of emptiness. Now, Jesus said, if you want to be happy, he uses the word, then be poor. If you want to be happy, be poor. Now, you've got to understand that word poor for just a moment. There are two words in the New Testament that are used for the word poor. The first one is in Luke 21, 2, when it talks about the poor widow who cast in her two mites. And there the word poor means to be in poverty, but at least she's got a little. She had two mites. That's where most of us live our lives. I mean, we're, we're blessed, but you know, we got a little. Praise the Lord. How many of y'all got a little? Amen. That's the way we live our lives. She's poor but she's got, a lot, she's got a little. But there's another word in our New Testament for the word poor, and that's in Luke 16 and verse number 20, where it talks about the rich man, the beggar. There's that word, the beggar. And it means this, to have absolutely nothing. It means to be absolutely bankrupt. Now let's read it like this. Blessed are the bankrupt. Now Jesus said happiness is found in bankruptcy. No, no, no. Don't go out tomorrow and file chapter 11. I heard about this old one boy. He was so steeped in poverty. He went to see his preacher and he said, man, go to the Bible. The Bible's got the answer. And he said, uh, a few weeks later, he come back and said, preacher, you're exactly right. He said, I just went to the Bible. I just threw it down. Uh, it opened up. I stuck my finger down. There was my answer, chapter 11. <laughs> Moving right along. Bankruptcy, chapter 11. Jesus said, if you really want to be happy, be bankrupt. But now he's talking about a particular kind of poverty. Let's continue to read. Look again at verse 3. Blessed are the poor, and then notice this, in spirit. In other words, Jesus said, if you really want to be happy, then you've got to realize how poor you are in spirit. Oh, now it's starting to become a little bit clearer to us. 
You see, Jesus is saying, blessed are the people who understand, who understand uh, that, that they are totally bankrupt in the sight of God. They see themselves as God sees them. Bankrupt. We have nothing whatsoever to offer God in return for His grace or His favor. God can't look down upon anybody in this world and say, that one deserves it. That one's got enough. I'm going to give it to him. That one's got enough. He can buy it. There's not a person in this room that has anything to offer God in return for grace, mercy, peace, forgiveness, salvation. We're bankrupt of anything. We're poor if it, when it comes to anything that we have to offer God. Have you ever seen yourself as God sees you with absolutely nothing to offer? You see, the one thing that keeps most people from coming uh, to God, from coming into the family, is their pride. I mean, they're not willing to admit that they're poor in spirit. They're not willing to admit that they're bankrupt. They're not willing to admit that they have nothing to offer God. They're not willing. They've never come to the point that they realize how sinful, how wicked, how low down that they really are. And their pride prohibits them from coming to God and entering the family. I'm going to tell you some of the reasons some people can't get saved is because they won't get lost. They won't see themselves as God sees them. You may think you're a pretty good person, but you'll never see your need for the Savior as long as you think there's something good about you. But brothers, ladies and gentlemen, when we come to the place that we understand that we are sinful in, in the sight of a holy God, we have nothing to offer Him whatsoever. We're wicked. All we deserve is a place in hell for our all eternity. I'm telling you, you've made the first step to becoming a child of God. A business is picking up in your life, in your direction. There's a God that can help you when you realize that you're wicked and low down and sorry and good for nothing. Now I know, I know some people say, preacher, you're not going to talk to me like that because I'm a pretty good fella. Preacher, you don't understand. I don't do drugs. I, I'm a pretty good person. Wait a minute. You're not ready for the family yet. You say, preacher, you don't understand. I don't have a criminal record. I'm a pretty good person. You're not ready for the family yet. You say, preacher, you don't understand. I don't ride with the hell's angels. I, don't, I cut grass. I don't smoke grass. Preacher, I step over cracks in order to say, step breaking my mama's back. I step over cracks. I don't snort crack. I'm a pretty good person. Can I tell you something? You're not ready for the family yet. Hey, but when you realize, when you see yourself as God sees you, wicked, low down, undeserving, ought to be in hell with our back broke forever, I'm here to tell you, friend, business is about to pick up in your life. We compare ourselves by the wrong standard. There's a verse over in, in, in the Corinthians that says something to this effect. It says this, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. And here's what God says about it. And that's not wise. You see, listen, many of you older folks remember when downtown on Trade Street, that's where all the winos hung out. The, the drunks, and that was their area down there. You know, if there was any down there this morning, we could go down there and get one out from under a bridge in a cardboard box. We could bring him here and put him on this platform and put him here. And then we could put me right here beside of him. 
And can I tell you something? Beside of that kind of a standard, I don't really look too bad. I am bad, but I don't look bad. I mean, I don't spend all my money on alcohol. I don't, I don't, I haven't abandoned my family. I, I have, I don't use profanity. I come to church, I pay my tithes, I read my Bible, I pray. Beside of him, I look pretty good. But that's the wrong standard. I'm comparing myself among them, uh, themselves. That's not wise. You see, the standard that God uses to measure righteousness is the standard of his own son. Now let's put Jesus here who was sinless and perfect and just and holy and innocent. Let's put him right here and then put me over here. Now who looks bad and who looks good? I cower in his presence. Everything he is, I'm not. He's light, I'm darkness. He's truth, I'm lies. He's, uh, he's real, I'm fake. Friend, I will tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. In the standard of God's economy, I come up short. I've been weighed and found wanting. Admit, but that makes me a pretty good candidate for the family of God when I see myself as God sees me wicked, undeserving, hell-bound thank God there's hope for people like that the blessedness of emptiness amen the Bible said this God did a worldwide search of, here, of humanity and here are his findings there's not a just man among them that doeth good and sinneth not no, not one. Let me tell you what I am. I'm in a room full of sinners this morning. Let me tell you what you're listening to. You're listening to a sinner this morning. I mean nothing. The songwriter said, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I didn't come to God with my morality. I didn't come to God with my riches the night that I got saved. I come as a broken down sinner in the sight of a holy God. And buddy, I'm telling you something. That's when God can help us. But when we realize what we are in God's sight. The blessedness of emptiness. But then look again at verse number four. And here's the second step to entering God's family. And that's the blessedness of brokenness. Look again at verse four. Blessed are they that want to hold it. We're talking about being happy here. And Jesus said, if you really want to be happy, then cry. Now, wait a minute. I told you, man, these, these statements are so out of this world that it's, uh, they don't make sense with what we're taught here in the world because normally when somebody's crying, we think of sadness. When somebody's crying, we think of heartbreak. When somebody's crying, we think of, of hurt. And, and, and I get all of that. But God says this, when you see yourself as I see you, we're building now stepping stones. When you see yourself as I see you, that's conviction. Only God can make you aware of how sinful you really are. <laughs> and when he does, he does a good job of it. Only God can bring conviction. But when you see yourself as God sees you, the next step is the step of contrition. You begin to mourn. Your heart is broken over, over your life. I mean, when we understand, ladies and gentlemen, that our sin... Put God's Son on the cross of Calvary. Can I tell you something? I know, I get it, I get it. Universally, God put Jesus. Histor eternally, God put Jesus on the cross. I get it, I get that. God, the Bible said it pleased the Lord to bruise His Son. God put Jesus, I get that. Historically, it was the Jews and the Romans that put Jesus on the cross. I get that, they were responsible. But can I tell you something? Can I tell you, universally, personally, Amen. it was me. 
They put Jesus on the cross. My sins were the nails. My hard, calloused heart was the hammer that drove the nails into the flesh of the Son of God. Buddy, I'm guilty. I'm the one who put Jesus on the cross. And wait a minute, so are you. And when we see ourselves as God sees us and we understand what we are in God's sight, it doesn't cause us to sit back and laugh about it, have fun about it. You know, in our day, people mock at sin. I mean, the Bible said fools make a mock at sin, Proverbs 14, 9. People laugh about sin. I mean, you watch these old TV shows at night and stuff that come on. I mean, sin is just a big joke, and they make fun of getting drunk, and they make fun of immorality, and they make fun of homosexuality, they make fun of it, and it's just a big joke to them. But I'm going to tell you something. Sin's not a joke to God. If you want to see what God thinks about our sin, look at Calvary. Look at Jesus. Can't even recognize him as a man. His face has been so marred. He, his visage doesn't even appear to be a man. His back is laid open. His interests are exposed. God said, that's what I think about your sin. That's what your sin did to me. That's what your sin did to, Cal to my son on Calvary. And that doesn't cause us to laugh about it and to joke about it. It brings us to the point that we mourn and we weep because we've hurt the Son of God. Conviction leads to contrition. Amen. We weep about it. James said this about it in James 4 verse 9. Watch this verse. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. What's he saying? What's he saying? Don't have fun in life. I don't think he's not saying, hey man, don't ever laugh in life. I want to laugh in life. But can I tell you something? When it comes to my sin, my joy ought to be turned to heaviness. My laughter ought to become mourning because I, wait a minute, you, me, we put Jesus on the cross. Our sins nailed him there. We're guilty. And it ought to cause us to mourn and to weep. The blessedness of emptiness. The blessedness of brokenness. But come to verse 5. Here's the third step. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The blessedness of selflessness. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm, I'm done, but I saved my favorite part for last. That word meek. So I said, boy, meekness is weakness. Can I tell you something? Two men in our Bible are said to be meek men. One was Moses and the other one was Jesus. And can I tell you something? Neither one of those were weak men. You can't lead two to three million grumbling Baptist Israelites through the wilderness and be a weak man. He saw, he saw, I said, Moses is a sissy. Yeah, he's a, such a sissy. He took a man and killed him and buried him in the sands of the desert. That don't sound too sissified to me. And Jesus said this, Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. You mean to tell me Jesus is a, is a, is a milk toast? You mean to tell me Jesus is a wimp? See him on the backside of that ship in a Category 5 hurricane. Those disciples are up there puking over the side of the boat, trying to, they're hoisting sails, bailing water, scared to death. Jesus! That ain't no wimp. No, sir. Jesus was a meek man, not a weak man. But do you know what the word meekness means? The word meekness simply means to be brought under control. 
And it referred to an animal, like a, a horse. You know, every horse has to be broken. Now, in Jesus' day, they'd say every horse had to be meeked. It had to be broken. In other words, it's got a wild spirit about it. It's unruly. It's untamed. You can't do anything with it. It has a lot of power, but it's power unharnessed because you can't do anything with it. It has a lot of potential, but it's potential untapped because you can't do anything with it. It's a wild animal. Can I tell you something? That's, that describes a lot of us before we got saved. We was like an old wild horse. Man, we was, we was biting at everything, chewing at everything. And all the while, the devil had us convinced, man, this is living, ain't it? And I mean, we was, we was totally out of control. But then came the good day when we saw ourselves poor in spirit. We saw the Son of God hanging on Calvary, and it was our fault, and we wept. And then we came to Jesus with the reins of our life and said, Jesus, I've made a mess out of this. Jesus, I am totally out of control. So this morning, I'm handing the reins of my life into your hands. I'm submitting myself to you. You know what? That's, that sounds like to me how you get saved. Amen. I mean, going back to that picture and we're done. Some of you are wild. Oh, my goodness, you were wild. Weren't you? You were wild. I mean, man, you were from one nightclub to the next nightclub, drinking alcohol, shooting drugs, living immoral. And I mean, you were just out of control. Your life was. I mean, man, you kicked against everything. You were biting against everything. You could not be brought under control. Reminds me of that story when Jesus, the last week of his life, he's on his way to Calvary. And the last week of his life, the first thing he does, he sends his disciples over to get a donkey for him to ride into the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible makes it clear that that donkey that they got had never been ridden. It was untamed. And I can see old Peter and John go over and get that thing. They're trying to bring it back over there. And it's biting and kicking and knee-hawing. And I mean, it's, it's, it's just a mess. And they bring it over there and give it to Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's calm. And Jesus crawls up on that donkey. And that donkey rides Jesus through downtown Main Street of the city of Jerusalem and lifts him up so all those who are standing on the street sides can see the Son of God and wave at him. That old donkey that used to be untamed in the presence of the Savior got meeked, friend. He was brought under control. And now Jesus can use him. God can get old him. And he can lift Jesus up so others can see him. Boy, I thank God I got saved. Amen. Hey, can I tell you something? That's how I come into the family. Poor in spirit. Mourning over my condition. And I come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm out of control. Bring control to my life. Aren't you glad Jesus brought control? Aren't you glad he got you off of dope and on to hope? Amen. Aren't you glad he got you out of the mire and put you in the choir? Amen. Aren't you glad he got you out of the house of shame and put you in the gracious hall of fame? Hey, Jesus did that. Thank God for our Savior. That's how you enter the family. You with me? Say amen. That's how you enter the family. Would you like to be in God's family today? Would you like to know the king? Would you like to open your heart as Matthew did to the king today and be saved? Now, I understand I'm not talking about getting religion. You don't need religion. That'll make you miserable. What you need is Jesus. He'll make you happy. Amen. Would you like to know him today? If you don't, I'd like to invite you to come to Jesus today and be saved. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I